Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. This episode is proudly sponsored by Vivino, the world's largest online wine marketplace. The Vivino app makes it easy to choose wine. Enjoy expert team support, door-to-door delivery, and honest wine reviews to help you choose the perfect wine for every occasion. Vivino, download the app on Apple or Android and discover an easier way to choose wine. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. Uh, this week, I'm pleased to have as a guest Alexi Curley Cashin, who is the principal at Ellen Tenney. And I'll let Alexi tell us about her background and the company. Thanks for having me on the show, Steve. I uh, look forward to chatting. Yeah, I have a long and meandering history in our industry. I started out in hospitality, love love restaurants, love working in them, didn't love the late hours. Uh, and so spent some time, you know, looking to get into sales and wholesale. And I worked for a supplier. I was living in New York City in my early 20s at the time. And, uh, you know, kind of cutting my teeth on wholesale and, you know, carrying a bag around the city and knocking on doors and, and selling wine. I worked for Polaner Selections, which is where I met Tim Allentenny. Um, and then we started Allen Tenney Imports in 2010. So 11 years ago, we set out to uh, compete in the logistics space. There are, you know, several kind of niche providers that offer really a lot of necessary services, so freight consolidation, and then as well as you know, helping managing inventory, compliance, customs brokerage, and the like. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So, so we're we are essentially a, a logistics service provider, and we do a whole myriad of things from from the freight side and importation, as well as on the resale side, having to do with selling stateside inventory, managing compliance, and you know, ultimately managing inventory. So, there's a category uh, term generally used uh, service importers, but you're not really, well, some of the other ones in the market are like MHW, Park Street, but you're doing some different things. Can you clarify the difference? Sure. So we, we offer very similar services to, to those types of companies on the on the distribution service side. And and as you say, a, a service importer. So so we absolutely function in that, in that same way. A couple of unique things that Ellen Tenney does differently are that we have a very robust freight consolidation arm of the business. So we don't just import products that we are then going to sell in the US. We actually import managed, not like legally or transactionally import, but we're actually moving the freight. So we're consolidating freight for hundreds of importers across the US who uh, effectively send us their POs. We do everything from pickup at the winery to consolidating that shipment and then getting it to the US and then ultimately to their warehouse. So that freight consolidation service is 
unique because we're not just doing it for kind of in-house clients, so to speak. And we're working with, like I said, hundreds of other importers across the U.S. who have that freight only need. So speaking about that, obviously it's an issue these days. Logistics is kind of on the front page of every newspaper and every uh, international government conference that's happening right now. How have you guys been dealing with that and... Well, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> That's been a challenge. Getting ships, getting containers, and getting stuff onto ships, and then through ports. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a, a tremendous challenge right now for every industry. And for the alcohol industry, what that looks like specifically is, you know, th- this industry is really managed based on just-in-time inventory, where that, that just-in-time purchasing model of you know, hey, I have a par level of, you know, 10 cases left. Great. I'm going to, you know, kick off a PO and send that to my winery and get product in, you know, eight to, to 10 or 12 weeks. That demand planning is just not a viable solution currently for importers. And so they're forced to purchase instead of two to three months of inventory, they're, they're purchasing five to six months of inventory in order to uh, alleviate those delays and or just have the right wines in the market at the right time. So that's an enormous strain for a couple of reasons. One, the cash flow of those importers who are having to pony up and purchase more than they'll sell through in a in a you know 90 day cycle. And then just on the logistics side, it's putting a, a tremendous strain on, well, as we're seeing, you look at the port of Long Beach and you know the many, many contain, uh, ocean vessels that are stuck outside the port and waiting, you know, waiting to to unload is a challenge, and that just that ripple effect all through the logistic chain from port workers to the truck drivers that then are picking up those containers, and then ultimately the warehouses that are trying to receive all that inventory. Like right now, Ellen Tenney Imports, we have sixty percent more inventory on the floor than we did in the fall of two thousand and nineteen, which is you know pre pandemic, pre tariffs, right in anticipation of the holiday season. So today we have 60% more inventory than, than that moment in time, which is a huge challenge for warehouses. Like they're, they're running out of space. There's warehouses that are seeking emergency locations and, and, or they're just slow to put all the wine away. So, you know, I, I have customers saying like, my wine's in the warehouse, but when am I going to get it? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, a big challenge. And the planning thing, I mean, working with a number of individual wineries and fielding the complaints from customers saying, when am I going to get my, you know, and it's almost like in this day and age, the answer to when am I going to get my inventory is, I don't know. (laughs) Now, that's not the right answer to give them, but basically that's what it is because there's so many open answers. But one of the points you made when we were talking initially was that you guys do slices of things as opposed to represent an alternate import source per se for new brands. And I thought that was really interesting because not everybody needs all the services that a service importer may offer and you guys offer it in pieces. To a certain extent, we, you know, we we definitely perform the best for a brand or for a company when we are managing it, you know, sort of soup to nuts. So, you know, having the ability to help with the freight and inbounding, then as that kind of translates into us then managing their inventory and compliance and sales, it is more seamless when we're able to to kind of help them throughout. But yes, we, as I mentioned, the freight service, because we're selling that to importers who were also, who were then not helping them with any of their other U.S. sales and compliance and inventory management, we are able to to just offer that freight service to an independent 
importer. The kinds of clients that you get, I imagine you have a lot of uh, permanent clients. So just that's the way of doing business and that's the way that they want to work. And you guys do too, long term. But when you get new people coming in, either calling or however they're contacting you, how do you handle that? And how do you like perform triage on uh, those incoming calls? Yeah, we, uh, you and I were, had some good chuckles about this. It, it's difficult because not all wine businesses are uh, shaped and sized alike. Even certain individuals who have a lot of industry experience, you know, are not as prepared or don't have the uh, the acute understanding of, of really everything involved in, in this very nuanced and, and intricate set of steps in terms of bringing a brand to the U.S. What is that strategy? What, what resources are you going to feed that idea? Resources meaning, you know, cash, you know, whereas like one of the biggest triage elements that we need to understand is kind of how solvent is the business that's calling and getting a sense of what their what their overall strategy looks like. You know, getting a sense of their experience or lack of experience. It's not that, oh, you know, if you're not experienced, you know, call us and we'll, you know, we're the experienced partner who can give you all the answers. You know, we're not a consultant firm, right? We're a logistics and distribution, you know, B2B platform. So yes, our team and our, uh, you know, Tim and I personally have you know, we, we set out to obviously compete in this space with, with lots of industry experience, but we aren't consulting or, you know, holding, holding people's hands, you know, to, to, through every step of building their business and trying to figure out, you know, what that strategy ought to look like or, or how to go to market. So, you know, we're definitely good at kind of helping them execute it once that plan has a little bit more shape. Are there other people either like me or, or other consultants that specialize on the marketing side of that and the education side of that helping brands move forward? Are there any particular ones that you work with or what services do you outsource to those types of companies? Yeah. I mean, we, yes, p people just like you, you know, it's great to kind of work in tandem on helping, you know, companies form that strategy and then, you know, kind of go to market together. You know, we're also working on a, a deeper knowledge base, uh, different tools and, you know, that people can download and, and kind of self-serve to learn a little bit more in terms of kind of how things work and frequently, frequently asked questions and things like that. So I think, you know, that not knowledge base so that people can self-serve, you know, we've been building that over over the last decade and, and we'll continue to do that. You had mentioned Tim Allentani, your partner on this. Uh, can you define his role and your role and how they differ? Yeah. Yeah, Tim and I, we, like I said, we worked together back in the day in New York. And, you know, I was curious about other opportunities beyond, you know, being a sales rep. And though I loved selling wine, Tim had an experience as an entrepreneur. He owned a wholesaler in Colorado, which he then sold. You know, his wife was is a chef and, you know, they have own several restaurants. And so, you know, he, he definitely has this sort of serial entrepreneurial energy, which I was really drawn to. And so when we set out to build uh, our logistics business, it was like drinking from a fire hose, just, you know, trying to get that, that like, you know, get the idea right, get the systems in place. And yeah, I think, you know, I am, my role has changed so dramatically over the, the course of these last 11 years. And so has Tim's, we have an amazing team that we're still headquartered in New York, just really, really talented and dedicated employees and managers who really lead each of the operational teams, as well as, you know, our sales team. And uh, yeah, it feels great to be sort of on this side of 10 years, like, especially during the pandemic, just seeing the, the heartache of so many businesses that you know, hadn't really built those pillars or shored up their ability to weather what an incredible storm that's just been, you know, 
super tough for businesses throughout the world, but, uh, but particularly within our industry. And so, yeah, I feel super proud of what Tim and I have built and, and uh, really, really proud of our team. Good. So turn it around a little bit. One, one of the things I've been talking about lately, and obviously I guess everybody has, is the not the emergence, but the, the growth of e-commerce and the importance, the strategic importance e-commerce plays in the wine and spirits industry. Um, and that bridges everything from direct sales to consumers, which we would call D2C from like domestic California producers to e-commerce from retailers to consumers, either intra or interstate. We have the three-tier system. Uh, we all know that. But there seem to be a lot of these solutions that are kind of slicing that pie a lot thinner and thinner and thinner. I'm not saying to uh, exclude the distributor from the equation, but capitalize on minimizing the distributor's involvement. Can you talk a little bit about those structures? e-commerce structures? Sure. And I'll talk about them more from just like a personal passion standpoint versus like, you know, Ellen Tenney's involvement, right? Because the three-tier system is alive and well. Ellen Tenney obviously plays in those top two tiers of both importation and distribution. So we as a business don't have any handling in e-commerce specifically, but it's really a, a hot topic. It's, you know, obviously during the pandemic, there was a, a a lot of energy around brands that were seeking that outlet and the cognizance to do it in a way that doesn't, it's not like, you know, oh, don't dismantle the three-tier system. I, I don't think that, that that's necessarily the, the route or that distributors should feel fearful that, you know, that there's challenging or that, that some of these businesses and, uh, and lobbying efforts to change certain regulations are in a in a uh, attempt to dismantle it. I would almost say that it like kind of complements or alleviates uh, some of the burden that a distributor feels in terms of like the lift, right? How do you get that brand and how do you lift it and get it into the hands and homes of more consumers? Like at the end of the day, that's what marketers and and the point of e-commerce is there for. So I think there's ways that these these different types of services that so like you're alluding to different kind of e-commerce solutions, and I see that kind of in two different ways. There are you know, these businesses like, you know, Drizzly or Reserve Bar or GoPuff, uh, you know, that are that are uh, like a facilitation to like, how do I get it from a retailer or a warehouse and then like deliver it to the consumer. So like the explosion of those types of businesses and their relevance is, I think, extremely beneficial to our industry. Our industry is notoriously slow to really adopt technology in a meaningful way. And so, and I can imagine, you know, putting ourselves in the shoes of a retailer, you know, it's like, okay, I got to integrate with Drizzly and then, then the GoPuff and then the Reserve Like it's a lot of work, especially for like a, a smaller independent, you know, liquor store, wine shop. Um, it's, it's distracting to like. Where one person's doing everything. And if he does that, that means there's other things he's not doing that he needs to be doing. Sure. Right. And so to, you know, like, like that, you know, trying to like integrate uh, or to adopt all of these platforms is, is very challenging, I think, on the, on the retail side of the industry. But, you know, there are also plenty of, you know, these platforms where, so I use one because I have a brand of my own St. Hilde Spike Tincture Tonics. And so I use one for my direct to consumer shopping cart on, on our website. And it's a, it's basically a software program that, you know, kind of is the is the engine behind that shopping cart on my website and it's 
integrated to retailers who are ultimately fulfilling those orders. So, you know, the fear for a brand of like, oh, I'm taking the food out of the mouth of my retail partners and, and a concern to not want to really disrupt that three-tier system, I see it differently. I think there are ways that you can kind of enrich and partner with retailers to, to funnel more business through them while also capitalizing on that really important marketing exercise of reaching consumers at home via e-commerce. Yeah. And, and I think that's the general consensus of most of the people that I talk to, that all these things play a role, especially for new to the U.S. or small or craft or however you want to define them that aren't going to get that level of attention from a distributor just because they're not that big. Those are realities. And there's, it's an opportunity, I think, for the smaller brands to establish themselves, build a distribution network, and create a case history of success. Because what I think most people are interested, especially with new brands, is how do I know it's going to continue to sell? Why should I invest my time and energy in this? And, and that's a good alternative uh, channel. One of the differentiators I see between them, sure, there's third-party facilitators that Drizzly falls under, and it's who owns the product and when does it get paid for, by whom to whom. That's a big piece of it, no question about it. But the other part, when we're talking about brick-and-mortar retailers, which is a fundamental part, I think, of the three-tier system and also is not going to go away, is who owns the data. And my understanding is that, that in third-party affiliates, most of the time it's the affiliate that or that third party that owns the data in, in comparison to a retailer e-commerce. And a lot of them powered by City Hive is one example, WineFetch is another, where they own the data. Uh, now, I, have, I know of a particular retailer who sees that as the make or break issue when it comes to using, participating in, and more importantly, leveraging some of these e-commerce services. Do you have a comment on that? Uh, it's an interesting thought. I mean, the I think obviously systems that allow for multiple parties to have access to that data is probably the highest and best route so that there's some, there's some shared energy there in terms of you know, hi, I'm the brand and I'm using this you know, platform or this uh, payment facility so that I can then reach more customers. And like, you know, so it's, it's that kind of push from the brand that's, that's pulling those customers ultimately to the retailer. So, you know, it makes sense that I would have access to that um, information. But then of course, as the retailer who's performing the sale, right, they are the ones that actually legally purchase product and then resell to consumers is equally important that, you know, I think they also have skin in the game in that, in that scenario. And, you know, would definitely benefit from from that data. A lot of what I see is from the consumer's perspective, they just want a frictionless or noiseless way. If they see a product they want to buy, that they can just click a button and do it. And I think that's one of the things that Drizzly and Minibar Delivery and some of the others brought to the party. And that made the deliverer of the individual retailer who got the business either very happy or very sad. And there's not all that continuity unless you can remarket to that that person. So I look at this and think, hmm, we as an industry, me and my role, you and your role, we do have a uh, responsibility to support retailers and make sure that they are there to profit and compete in the face not only of uh, e-commerce, but also things like Total Wine, all of which, and Costco and all, you know, have a role in, in the marketplace, no question about it, but it becomes more challenging for the, the smaller guys uh, to play in. Uh, on my podcast, I had a guest, Christy Frank, who's just a beloved retailer in our industry, and she just had the most wonderful things to say about, you know, small retail and how it's, you know, there's this sort of impulse of like, you know, scale or die or automate, or, you know, you've got to like, everyone's got to grow to be the size of total white, you know, and that's just not true. Like the, the, in, in the pursuit to support 
retail. There are so many ways to do that. And not every retailer is going to make sense for them to engage with you know, a lot of these delivery platforms or, uh, you know, even because it's the infrastructure, the the space that you are required to purchase, you know, that much more inventory so that you do have it, you know, on hand and, and, and on demand for consumers to, to buy with that kind of point and click activity. So, you know, I think there's plenty of room for retailers to grow and, you know, stay within the silos that are important to them uh, and the ethos of like why they started the business and, and, and where their business is headed. So I don't, you know, I also just think, uh, you know, the the independent retailer who is just supporting the neighborhood and right, the plays a social role, not just a, a commercial role, right? Yeah, yeah, foot traffic and and I think too that yes, there is this definite importance with consumers who want to be able to see a brand, click on it, buy it, but that's something that they know they want to buy, or the marketing is is so great that it's it's you know caught their attention but really consumers when they're discovering products when they're or being educated and learning about you know new products that doesn't really happen online that happens in store and so the i think the importance of you know brick and mortar retail and the the relationships that a consumer kind of builds with a, a shopkeeper the education that they that they glean the that that opportunity for discovery is really in discussion. It's- in discussion. I mean, that that's a big thing, as opposed to just one-sided communication. It's one thing to research; it's another to discuss whether or not that fits your palate or not. And somebody, you know, knowledgeable has to interpret. So we're not talking about sautéed gooseberries, but you know, things that people can understand and that matter. Yeah. So I think there's room for both. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. And you had mentioned a podcast. You have a podcast. What motivated you to start a podcast on, on your own, and how have you dealt with the challenges? and exigencies of running a podcast on your own? Sure. I. It's funny. I uh, I have a uh, dear friend in an organization that I'm a part of called Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. Uh, I've been a part of the organization for eight or nine years, and it's a wonderful community of entrepreneurs who uh, face, doesn't matter what our business is, we face a lot of the same struggles. And so that, um, that support of that community has been one of the most enriching things I've ever taken part of in my career. And I met a guy named John Corcoran, who has a company called Rise 25, which is done for you podcasting. And just the more I got to learn about his business, you know, their take is, you know, this is another platform, a new medium, right? For people to create content. So, you know, we could look into the future 10 years, from three years from now, five years from now. And it might it look like that most businesses have a podcast, you know, the way that you have a LinkedIn page for your business or a Facebook page or an Instagram account. It is a like podcasting is, is another medium that is uh, obviously video or audio derived. And for me, it was less about, oh, I want to create this like incredible podcast where I have X amount of downloads each time. And, you know, like, that's not the point. I'm not, I'm, it's not, it's not my end goal. The end goal was to create this, um, you know, a podcast that was in many ways, a, a calling card. It's, it's so much more powerful and just cool and fun to reach out to somebody and say, Hey, you know, you, you're somebody in the, in the drinks industry that, you know, seems like you have a, a neat story to tell. Would you like to come on my podcast? It's just such a, um, a more unique way to engage with somebody to get someone's attention. You know, some of the people that I've had on my podcast that, you know, are way above my caliber that it's like, what a gift that, that, you know, certain people have said yes. And like, 
Yeah, no, it's 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 a gift, and I like I pinch myself sometimes. Like I really, I'm talking to, uh, you know, the the CEO of Krug. Like she's just incredible, um, Maggie Enrique. So, um, yeah, I just it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've I've been doing it for almost two years, and uh, yeah, I just think it's a great way to create content, both for the person on my show as well as for me. And, uh, and like I said, an incredibly unique and engaging way to connect with people. How frequently do you do it? Is it on a schedule? Sort of. Um, I try to get at least two episodes a month. I I do, um, one series a year. So, uh, last year I did sort of from the perspective of the sales rep on the street, like what's, what's, you know, you're in, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, this is all pre-vaccine and, uh, you know, going into the holidays where like cities are closing down. And so I did a, a really cool series talking to sales reps about like, you're, you're on the street, tell us what's going on in Chicago and Miami. And that's awesome. Yeah. San Francisco and, um, you know, Denver, like to, it, that was a, a really neat, series. And then this fall, um, I'm just wrapping up a series of female founded brands, um, which has also been really great. So where can, what's the name of the podcast and where can people listen to it? It's the Alexi Cashin podcast. Cause I was brainstorming all these kitschy names and was agonizing over it. And <laughs> I just said, forget it. Um, and you can, um, you can listen in the Alexi Cashin podcast. It's alexicashin.com or on, uh, Ellen Tenney. Uh, imports website you can uh, listen in you mentioned saint hildy's um i i got into the uh import business myself because i thought it was a good idea and it didn't take me long to figure out it was not a good idea it was a bad idea for a whole lot of reasons tell me what saint hildy's is and why you're doing it i know i know um Creating a consumer product is uh, not something I've ever done before, which is why I so maddeningly uh, jumped into it. Um, No, I I created St. Hildy's with two uh, other female co-founders, one of whom was my college roommate um, from back freshman year in the dorms of CU in Boulder, um, and then her sister-in-law. And so the three of us created St. Hildy's because I love this category, which the industry is really calling the fourth category of alcohol, right? It's not beer, it's not wine, it's not spirits. Like, what is it? It's often in a can. Um, there's a million of them. And so I, I love this moment in time where it feels truly innovative, uh, disruptive even, where you know there's, there's all these kind of unique things coming out. Obviously, seltzer is a huge boom uh, and moving force within this kind of fourth category, um, cause seltzer is technically categorized and taxed as a beer, but it's, you know, hard seltzer, um, which now people are very clear what that is. And, uh, you know, but there's like all these other creative, more craft, um, spinoff versions with, you know, some are spiked with, uh, you know, a fermented alcohol, like a, like a seltzer, or distilled like a spirit. And that has different tax implications and different distribution, um, avenues, uh, which I find fascinating because like that's the part that feels like disruptive to me where, you know, like St. Hilde's, for example, is, is made with fermented cane sugar. We also use real juices and herbal tinctures. Uh, so there's a herbal boost um, within the beverages and they're made with real ingredients, nothing fake, no flavors. So we're very much in the craft uh, portion of this fourth category or, or alternate beverage. 
Um, and so it's, it's great. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to capitalize on this moment in time in our industry. Like I haven't in my 20 years in this industry seen anything quite like this, uh, occur, you know, within the industry in terms of like pushing boundaries and categorization, like the last kind of real thing that really sort of, um, pushed some, some kind of regulations and boundaries was, was hard, was, uh, ciders, you know, where ciders came on the scene of, you know, are they beers or are they wine? And, uh, you know, each state kind of had to like re-regulate and categorize and figure out tax, um, implications for that category. And now it's just like, it's just, they're popping up like left and right. So it feels, feels like a really creative time and a burgeoning time within the industry. God bless you. So where, what states are you in distribution now? So we just launched a few months ago. Um, St. Hildes is distributed in California. Um, we are launching our direct-to-consumer website this week. So you can learn more about St. Hildes at drinkahildy.com uh, and follow us on Instagram, same handle, drinkahildy, uh, and can shop at retailers in California or uh, soon to be online. There you go. So, and the name St. Hildy comes from Hildegard of Bingen, Right, that's it's correct. Always been yes. an interesting subject. I've I've actually been in Bingen. Tell me. How you... <laughs> uh, so Saint Hildegard was, uh, you know, obviously a real person. She was a 12th century mystic. Uh, she was known as the mother of plant medicine. She was amazing. She was a polymath, so she was, um, you know, studied cosmology and science, uh, botany, of course. She composed her own music. She brewed her own beer. Uh, just a really uh, incredibly inspiring woman in history. A, a Renaissance lady before the Renaissance. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And we call her Hildy for short. There you go. I, I like the name. Okay, um, we're coming to the end of um, the interview. I, I, usually, I like to end all my interviews by asking a um, question about key takeaways. So if somebody had been listening to this, is there something they can put to use immediately, take a, a lesson, a word of advice or a suggestion and put to work immediately for their business based on what they just heard? Sure. So we're in the midst of this really challenging uh, time with global shipping and supply chain. So I think that that changing the way in which a business uh, has kind of a mindset or, or, you know, thinks about their planning, both from like cash resources, as well as just the, the time it takes to, to get inventory to the US. Um, there's a shift, and it's, it's going to be here to stay for quite a while. Like I think, you know, all the industry experts indicate that we're in this mess, at least through the half of, of next year, if not, you know, the entire year, or, you know, our price is going to go down. The answer is no. Um, and so I think that one thing that if I could ask our industry to sort of retool is there's this, like our industry has is notorious for, you know, not wanting to pass all of the costs down to the end consumer, right? That consumers at the end of the day, like, you know, they want to pay no more than, you know, 10, 10 or 12 bucks for a glass of Prosecco. Well, they might need to pay more. And, and like, I think this fear of, oh, if I, you know, if I increase my prices too much, then I'll lose that Prosecco placement. But like everybody across the industry, like we, all, we, we've got the, yeah, the, the costs need to go all the way down to the end consumer. The consumer needs to feel these price increases. So if there's any takeaway that I can offer or a, a plea to the, uh, to the industry, it's that, you know, we've got to, we've got to shift our mindset uh, and some of the expectations that we 
you know, ultimately have um, set out for the industry. Great. Good advice. Okay. Um, uh, we'll wrap it up now, but um, why don't you tell us if somebody wants to reach out to you, where they can reach out to you and uh, what, what social media sites you participate in. Great. Yes. So please reach out to us, uh, ellentennyimports.com. Um, Imports is our Instagram handle and you can, you know, call us anytime, reach out to us. We're, uh, we're here to help with any freight needs, compliance needs. A big thank you to Alexi Cashin of Ellen Tenney Imports for joining us today and giving her perspective on um, changes facing the industry. Alexi, thank you very much for your, sharing your time and uh, look forward to seeing you around. You weren't in, in Verona, but maybe the next, next time we're all in Verona, you'll be there. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us on this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. This is Steve Ray. Until next week. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast. Hi, everybody. Italian Wine Podcast celebrates its fourth anniversary this year, and we all love the great content they put out every day. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People has become a big part of our day, and the team in Verona needs to feel our love. Producing the show is not easy, folks. Hurting all those hosts, getting the interviews, dropping the clubhouse recordings, not to mention editing all the material. Let's give them a tangible fan hug with a contribution to all their costs. Head to ItalianWinePodcast.com and click Donate to show your love.